0: Welcome to Moments That Rock, a proud member of the Pantheon group of podcasts and home to a plethora of wonderful music based podcasts. I'm your host, Tony Miklidis, and after spending some 30 years in the music industry and working with some of the world's leading artists, I've finally been paroled, adopted by Pantheon, and sharing some amazing stories from some equally amazing people. Moments That Rock is that moment where artists and music industry insiders share moments that rocked their world. And today, by way of a contrast, nothing we want to keep the same every week, anyway, is just one person, a veteran himself of uh, the music industry, a publicist for uh, a good long time, and an author himself... His name is Dennis McNally, but we'll leave uh, the introduction to him. All I can tell you is he spent uh, a long time with the Grateful Dead and to talk about insider insights, Dennis has them all. But we'll let him introduce himself.
1: My name is Dennis McNally and I was the Grateful Dead's publicist from 1984 until Jerry's death and then with the company for another 10, 15 years. I also wrote a book uh, about the Grateful Dead uh, called A Long Strange Trip, uh, The Inside History of the Grateful Dead, which, plug, um, actually made it to the New York Times bestseller list for one week, um, but it was a good week. Before I became the publicist, uh, in 1980, Jerry Garcia uh, invited me to be their biographer uh, because he liked the book I had done about Jack Kerouac, um, who I might add, uh, just last weekend, his, was the centennial of his birth, uh, 100 years. What it was really getting to me uh, last week um, was that my, I began that book 50 years ago. Um, I had the idea in February of 1972, a, a, a guy gave it to me, uh, gave me the idea. Um, I had, was talking about sort of generalities, and he said, uh, you should write a book about Kerouac. His papers are at Columbia, and you can stay with my friends in the Bronx. So I wrote that book about Kerouac and I, in the process, the same guy had also turned me on The Grateful Dead. And uh, I wanted to uh, write a book about The Grateful Dead and uh, the universe decided to listen to me and Jerry. Um, and I eventually met Jerry and oh so casually mentioned that I had written this book and sent it to him. And he got very excited because Kerouac, when he was 16, Kerouac was his role, his role model and frankly it stayed that way until the day he died um he his you know sort of way of navigating through life um he he took from the lessons of on the road uh, about improvisation and spontaneity and etc brought me in as the biographer i worked on that for a while uh they needed a publicist and i needed a job and i tried to do both simultaneously which was clinically insane um, not only because the mentality of, of being an honest historian, and I think I was, um, uh, and a publicist, publicist is there to uh, to be kind to his client. Um, I, I never had to lie working for the Grateful Dead because the truth was much weirder and stranger than anything anybody would believe anyway. Um, uh, there were some things I didn't say, obviously. But uh, so then I became a publicist and, and enjoyed... Um oh moments that you wouldn't believe. I'll give you another example of of the world of the Grateful Dead, not music with the Grateful Dead, but not music per se. Places that you never, ever, ever thought you'd be and are thanks to being with Fill in the Blank, but in this case the Grateful Dead. Um we had played uh, a weekend in Telluride, Colorado. And uh, it was there were daytime shows and it was summer, so um, it was still quite light, six o'clock. <clears throat> and because uh, the uh, the airport in Telluride is like nine thousand feet or something, uh, it was quite you know high altitude. We didn't have our usual plushy um, uh, plane, uh, you know, charter jet. Uh, the the they it just couldn't lift lift off with the you know bodies and and. Um, Suitcases and all that. So we had this very odd plane, um, which was a, it looked like a, like a DC three out of nineteen thirty six. It it uh, one one seat on each side of the aisle. Everybody had a window. This is relevant as as you'll see. So we get up in the air. Tomorrow's a day off, and everybody's very relaxed. And uh, <laughs> the pilot comes on. And he says, "Do you guys want to go? We we're going to Phoenix, where it was one hundred and eighteen, by the way." do you guys want to go straight to phoenix or do you want to be tourists well you know this bunch that was an easy question tourists do you want to see the black canyon of the gunnison or monument valley monument valley great so most folks know about monument valley and if you don't know google it you know you'll be very glad you did it is a very southern utah and it's one of the most spectacular places on the planet um And it has these buttes, right? And they rise about 2,000 feet above the valley floor. And we went into, and by now it's getting near, starting to get near sunset. So it's twilight. And all this, all these buttes are made of sandstone, which just in the right light, just sort of ooze color. It's just unbelievable. And we went into the valley at 1,000 feet. So there's buttes going off into infinity above us and they're below us and there's this valley and and you know it was i mean I, i'm pretty sure that was illegal um but you know nobody caught him um but what was really a bit hilarious about it is you know because this is the world of the grateful dead at that moment uh, mickey hart had purchased a boa constrictor true story a uh, boa constrictor earlier in the tour and the the Charlie, his name, Cosmic Charlie, which was a dead song. Uh, Charlie was now on the floor of the plane, um, you know, wiggling around. And when he touched certain people's feet, they would react with horror. Mickey's son, Taro, who was then about seven or eight, is sitting in the pilot's lap. And the pilot swears Taro's flying the plane. And just to top it all off, in the back, right behind me and across the aisle is Jerry who's giving a film history lesson, because um, again, for those of you who don't don't know, uh, Anglo, you know, white America found out about uh, Monument Valley thanks to the location discoverer who gave it to John Ford, the famous uh, film director. Um, And all those John Wayne movies in the 30s, she wore a yellow ribbon and stagecoach and like that, um, were shot in Monument Valley. Um, and Jerry was literally saying, "See, that's the opening of Stagecoach," and uh, you know, he really he'd spent a lot of time in motel rooms in the '60s, staring at the screen, playing his guitar, and, and you know, sound off, but looking at the screen, and he knew more about movies than anybody you ever you ever imagined. And I just was sitting there thinking, "This is," and again, you have to understand it: the world of Grateful Dead, weird was actually a very positive adjective that it had to be one of the weirdest moments in my life and it could never have happened except that I was hanging around with these, these lowlifes. The thing about working with the Grateful Dead was, and it, and it did, God knows it rocked my world for 14 years. Well, it was the greatest job in the whole world for a number of reasons. One is that I'm fairly self, I I don't need much managing, you know, point, point me. Um, And Garcia, was the leader who wouldn't lead he had a, a relationship with everybody else in the band that was kind of um, i always think of it as gravitational everybody came around you know sort of focused in on him not because he was barking orders or you know even suggest making suggestions it was just it was charisma I mean he attracted people um, I recently had the the uh, fun of uh, producing um, a box set on behalf of the estate of his music Before the Grateful Dead, called amazingly, Before the Dead. And uh the first side, it's a six disc package. And the first side is um he he'd gotten out of the army uh with it was it was a mutually amicable split. Uh they threw him out and he was glad. Um uh, and he um he was living in Palo Alto uh, and had met this Robert Hunter who would go on to be his writing partner. Um, he'd been there like five months. And uh, they had a duo, Bob and Jerry. Um, uh, Jerry singing and playing and, and Robert singing. And they did a, a gig um, for a mutual friend of theirs, uh, Bridget, her, birthday, her 16th birthday party. And there's you know, 20 people in the living room. And you can feel, He was 18, he wasn't even 19 yet. You can feel the attention in the room on Jerry. There was just something about him that people connected with. That sort of never changed. Um, But he didn't want to make decisions. I I once called him boss and somebody said, don't call him boss. And Jerry said, he can call me boss, just don't ask me to make decisions. Um, And that was really the way he he approached it. you know, you read rock and roll history, and, and there's, there's um, uh, you know, I mean, there's Wyman and, and, and George Harrison complaining about, you know, the the, the writing partnerships, for instance, of, of uh, the Glimmer Twins and, and Lennon McCartney. In The Grateful Dead, Jerry did everything short of using rubber hoses to force Bob Weir to write songs, because he didn't want it, the band to be just him and Hunter there were early albums where it was pretty much just them cuz they were written all the good songs by the last one Brent Midland who was who was you know the new guy he got the most out- songs cuz he'd written the best songs and everybody agreed you know there was um, there was there was some i re- i can't remember but there was some band uh, infamously where um where uh a couple of the guys in the band started working on a new song and leaving out Guy number three, he starts breaking the door down because he knows that millions in in royalties are being you know forged in that room, and he wants his piece. Uh, as I say, <laughs> that just did not happen with uh, with Garcia around. He set some—I was going to say boundaries, but that's not right—the right word. He 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 embodied uh, characteristics about not doing things for money. Respecting your audience, uh, all that—that that people followed again, not because he was the boss, but because it became, you know, obviously, um, obvious to everyone that it was the right thing to do. You're listening to
0: Moments That Rock with me, Tony Michaly. This It is part of the Pantheon Group of podcasts. Today's guest, Dennis McNally giving us some more insider insights into the legendary band,
1: The Grateful Dead. The thing that would make you crazy about working for The Grateful Dead is because he did not want to take responsibility, nor anybody else in the band, for instance, for a lot of stuff. The crew, when it came to the stage, the crew ran things. Now, somebody has to. I mean, you have to control flow. You, I mean, if, with the Rolling Stones, I, I, I gather, if it's not, other than wives or possibly hot girlfriends, nobody was on the stage, which is, you know, one solution, but we grateful, again, you, you're, you're dealing with anarchists here, so there were lots of people on the stage that came and they went, and they, I was just do, doing an interview um, with Steve Farish, who was one of those crew members, uh, who was talking about how people, particularly really, really high people, would come up on the stage and they would want to touch things. And of course, that was a very bad idea. And, uh, and it's also true, um, I wasn't there, but it was. I was assured it was true that a young woman um, just very casually stumbled over something and the sound, no, was it the sound of the lights? See, it's been a while since I heard the story, but one or the other on one half of the stage went out because she kicked something. Um, you know, so obviously the crew had a major responsibility, and they, you know, they uh, they embraced it, shall we say, not always kindly, but in general, working with the Grateful Dead, and this is one of the truest things I ever heard in my life. The head of the, uh, the Grateful Dead's road crew, who's the actually the president of the corporation, was a man named uh, Lawrence Shirtlift, Shurt, uh, commonly called Ramrod. Uh, Ramrod was one of the best people I ever got to know. He's passed, unfortunately. Um, and um, we had done a show again at RFK Stadium, and it, which meant uh, it was midsummer, which meant it was disgusting. It was 100 degrees and 100 percent humidity, and it was just miserable. And we've been out there. He and I had been out there for like 12 hours and um, we were leaving. and. Um, we got to the top of the stairs, and I happened to be walking next to him. And he said, and he sort of looked around and then he sighed and he said, "At least it's not a real job." Which said it all. Um, we, you know, it wasn't a real job. I didn't have a real job with the Grateful Dead. I was working for the Grateful Dead. That's not part of the real world entirely. Um, and and uh, you know, certainly none of the things about uh you know time clocks and and reporting to your superior you had to do your job and you probably had to work twice as hard as any corporate job but it was in service of saving the world or something whatever it was it wasn't about uh I mean we, I wanted my paycheck but it wasn't about just about making money or making a profit for the band um it was it was about serving the music and the music was there to change people's minds. And it was a family. The thing about the Grateful Dead is they had an experience for several months that is, un- I think, unique. Now lots and lots of musicians have played music while very, very high. I mean, Jimi Hendrix probably holds the record. But um, the fact is that uh, for the two months that they dropped out of the music business and played in the acid tests with Keezy and the Merry Pranksters, uh, they experienced a situation in which they weren't the show. They were the soundtrack, the audit, everybody in the room was the show. That was what, what the acid test was about. And uh, they could play or not play. And there were shows, there were acid tests that they didn't really play. Uh, there was one in particular where just as they started, Bill Kurtzman decided that he needed to adjust the setup of his drums. and sort of took them apart and put them back together again for the next three hours. And so they didn't play a lot of music um, that night. Uh, so the, the point is, uh, they came to see the, uh, the audience, that is to say, the people in front of them. And when they went back to regular gigs, it was the audience, quote unquote, as partners. The the traditional status of all performers, classical not necessarily, I suppose, uh, religious things where it's a little different, but anyway, um, is that the, you know, the the performer is up high and offering his art or her art to the audience and the audience, you know, applauds and says, thank you, we love you. And in this case, um, they had a situation in which the people in front of them were were them. especially if you're high enough, um, and we're, but we're very much part, it was a level field, um, and, um, there was a pinch of that, even when they were playing to 50,000 people at Giant Stadium, you know, they, they just, they, they had this, uh, and certainly Jerry never forgot that, um, you know, it's a partnership, it's, they're, they're partners in crime. Oh, we had a manager, we had, we had accountants, and, uh an attorney um the manager was not a manager in the conventional sense because he did not have a percentage he did not have the right to hire and fire he was an employee too um a well-employed well-paid employee we were all well-paid for that matter i mean you had crew members making six figures you know um which to put this is back when Six Figures meant something. But at one point they had three managers. they grateful they've sort of tried everything uh, for dealing with management. But for the, the, the last 10 years uh, of the band, uh, it was a guy named Cameron Sears. At this point, you know, they, they've been going 20 years. Um, and what he had to do was simply make sure that they got what they, you know, sort of what they wanted out of their situations. It was, it was anarchy which is actually very conservative. Now that sounds contradictory, but as an example, in the band decision-making, one loud no was a veto. Everybody had veto rights. So that means that you only do what everybody agrees on other than playing shows, which you know pretty much fell in certain parameters and one band member supervised the touring committee to you know, approve what was worked out, but, that fell into a really comfortable groove that everybody knew what was going. You know, we 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 had our calendar year worked out. There was a spring tour, a summer tour, a fall tour, a couple around a couple around the Bay Area here and there, and so forth. Um, but it meant that you know any other project, um, a movie, or this or that, whatever, um, somebody would object. You know, might very possibly object, or they'd all just go, Yeah, sure, Jerry, you do. You know. There was friction. <laughs> there was certainly, fr- I mean, they were human. All I can say is it worked very, very well um, in terms of folks got what they wanted. Pigpen died. Um, many keyboard players died. The only, th- Keith and Donna, Keith and Donna left uh, because they felt, uh, basically, they just sort of felt, well, they were both doing far too much uh, alcohol and other things uh, that was that that then that was good for him, them, um, and and uh, they just felt it, it consumed, and it and it, it was consuming. Brent Midland died, um, uh, and I know Jerry. I always felt that Jerry kind of never recovered from that. That that Jerry felt that the Grateful Dead had sort of turned monstrous and consumed Brent. Brent had some deep issues of self-esteem that went long before he got to the Grateful Dead. So, you know, it wasn't just the Grateful Dead, but it, they were the focus of an enormous amount of energy from literally, you know, a million people. Um, and uh, it was, it was uh, demanding. I mean, Jack couldn't leave his hotel room on the road. Okay, it, and it fell most on, Jer- on, on Jerry. One of the, my favorite moments with the Grateful Dead and it rocked my world was um, I got, we were in the Chicago and there was a wonderful traveling uh, Monet exhibit um, of like five examples of the same visual, but each varying according to time of day or time of, month, uh, time of year, whatever. A haystack, you know, haystack in the spring, in the fall, and it was an amazing show. And uh, I got uh, the band an hour alone. Jerry could not go to an uh, art a museum without you know attracting a crowd. So he got to do we you know we we got to do that. um And uh, all they had all they had to do was. Sign some autographs for the people who worked overtime to keep the, it was after you know the, the the place closed for the day. So um, you know, that was wonderful. And and the um the great thing about it was about a month later, not very much longer later, we went to Europe and had a day off in Paris. And most of us had been in Paris and, you know, done most of the many, you know, the biggest sites. Um So we all, a number of us went to Giverny to Monet's home. um, And uh, once again, there was Ramrod, uh, the wise, and he really was, um, he and I were walking, to be honest, we were smoking a joint. We were walking around Monet's garden. It was just the two of us. And he was looking at the the famous Chinese bridge. um, And so Ramrod, he just looked and he said, you know, he got it right Well, let me correct something about in that remember he died of a heart attack, Jerry Dean, and his his he was clean I might add when he died um he had committed uh to uh to to changing that what he died of was um the self neglect of a guy into his fifties who still didn't exercise, smoked cigarettes, ate horribly, um, and had raging diabetes. So, you know, he died of almost everybody over 40 recognizes, okay, I got to get a little exercise and be a little judicious about what I eat and so forth, and quit the cigarettes. Uh, And, you know, he just did not, again, he did not want to take responsibility for that kind of stuff. They're connected. The drug abuse, but it it wasn't the drugs that killed them. It was the cheeseburgers. I, I will I will just observe the one thing about the Grateful Dead is that that um, they um, I thought start the sentence over again. So you know they did this uh, in 2015. They did uh, a series of shows called Fair Thee Well to the official end of the Grateful Dead. 2015. And they, they ended up in, uh, in uh, highly, you know, sold at three stadium sold out stadium shows and, and national uh, streaming uh, uh, sales that were you know, off, the, off the charts. And um, I thought that that was, you know, sort of things would start sort of fading away because all things, to coin a phrase, all things must pass and, you know, stuff will. And I was quite wrong. Because what I realized came to realize within six months after was that, um, and of course, there's still Dead and Company, but beside that, um, Deadheads had come to the conclusion that they were not just in love with the band. They were in love with the music, and it, it mattered who played it, but that was a matter of taste. And in fact, I would argue quite seriously that there are vastly more deadheads now than there were in 1995 when Jerry died. And there are probably more deadheads who never saw Jerry than us old farts, uh, because um, there's a band called J-Rad, Joe Russo's Almost Dead, very, very good. I like them a lot. And I went to a show of theirs at Frost Amphitheater in in Palo Alto, 9,000 people. And I turned, I was up near the front and I turned around and looked and it was exactly the same demographic as it had been 50 years before. Some young people, mostly, you know, some really young people in their mid-teens and high school and college people on up to old guys. It's like nobody left. (laughs) And these more and more young kids just keep, because in every group of people, there's a niche, and it is a niche, but, but uh, there's a, a group of people that want to be surprised, that, want, that don't want to hear note for note. Uh, they don't want to hear what they heard on the radio, which is good because we're rarely played on the radio except for certain niche shows. And, you know, that's deadheads.
0: That's deadheads Indeed. And great insider insights from Mr. Dennis McNally, an author himself, wrote a book on Jet Kerouac, which uh, Jerry, Dar- Jerry Garcia discovered, invited him along to join the crew, and he became their publicist for a good 15 years and then stayed with them a lot longer uh, when Jerry passed away in the mid-90s. So there you have it. You've been listening to Moments That Rock with me, Tony Mikeley. It's part of the Pantheon group of podcasts. We'll be back with more fun and frolics
1: next week. Thank you for listening.